You're listening to TSG Time with Patrick Fowler and Doug Spaulding, the show that tackles all things performance measurement in a half hour or less. You can expect interviews with industry legends and in-depth discussions with authors on topics that will be appearing in upcoming issues of the Journal of Performance Measurement. It's now time to welcome your hosts, Pat and Doug. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 5 of TSG Time. I'm Doug Spaulding. And I'm Pat Fowler. Before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host, Patrick Fowler, who celebrated his 25th anniversary at TSG on June 1st. We're very lucky to have you. Thank you for your guidance, support, and of course, your friendship throughout the years. And I look forward to many more. Great. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate that. Now on with the show. (laughs) Today, we're joined by Susan Agbenotto. Susan joined Opus Investment Management in 2003 as a portfolio analyst for mortgages and is currently the Director of Investment Performance. She's responsible for portfolio performance, attribution, and compliance, while overseeing GIPS compliance for the firm. Prior to joining Opus, Susan worked in the claims division of the Hanover Insurance Group Incorporated, the parent company of Opus. Welcome, Susan. Well, thank you, Doug. Thank you, Patrick. First, thank you for having me. Um, it's really an honor to be on your podcast. Um, the past few episodes have been insightful. So thank you for putting this together. And before you ask me my first question, I wanted to say congrats to Patrick um, for 25 years and to Doug. I think you also um, hit 20 years this 20, year, yes, right? That's true. So, thank you. Um, I'm in the room with with giants. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Well, thank you, Susan. We appreciate you being in the room. And so let's let's kick it off. If you could tell us something that most people don't know about you. I would say um, the fact that on in my spare time, I have been working on my doctorate of theology. Um, I have been wanting to do that for a long time. And when COVID hit, you know, um, a lot of people did all kinds of things, bought new furniture, more the lawns, landscaped, you know, redesigned everything. But I I took that opportunity to start working on the doctorate and I'm actually going to be done in December. Wow. And I'm really excited. And out of that, I actually have two books that I'm, I have with publishers that will be released around December. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's awesome. Uh, awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So I know a lot of a lot of what you do revolves around uh, the GIPS standards. So, what advice would you give a firm um, that's planning to claim compliance with the GIPS standards? Yeah, so that's a, a million dollar question. <laughs> My answer today is definitely different from what I would have given, you know, maybe twenty years ago when I started. Um, today, I would say there's a lot of companies that help with that. You know, there's a lot of consultant type companies that will help firms bridge the gap to start to you know get into compliance but if you're looking at the answer from 22 years ago i would say looking at the four overarching blocks of of performance and and gibbs compliance the first being how do we calculate performance today i mean we as a firm you have to look at that are you using the the time weighted and money weighted formulae that are recommended and required by the CFA Institute, um, how frequently are you reporting performance? And if you need to make a change, one of the things you have to look at is your systems. Are your systems capable 
um, of making that change. Um, the second block I would say is um, really thinking about your accounts in terms of composites. And so you can have a firm that has, you know, 40 accounts and has two composites or 40 accounts and has, you know, 15 composites. It's just how you want to think about that and maintain that on a consistent basis. That's definitely a part of getting into Gibbs compliance. And then I would say even the skill set of your um, performance team. Is it a time for the firm to, I would say, invest in new skills for the current team? Or is it time to bring somebody on who has the skill set to bridge that gap from just generating and reporting performance into Gibbs compliance? So those are the, the things that I would say a company would definitely need to think about. And if, if it's a system change, time to think about, you know, new systems. If it's personnel, start looking into that as well. Right. That's great. Great feedback. So we had the privilege of seeing you last week at uh, PMAR 21 in New Brunswick. Um, just curious, what uh, was your favorite moment or key takeaways from the event? You know, I, I have to start off by saying that PMAR really is one of the more valuable conferences um, I have found simply because, you know, it's a gathering of brilliant professionals within the industry and, and everybody is coming together to learn and to share. And, and I think that's what really makes PMAR different. And of course, for me, the the great takeaways was, I'm sure for a lot of people as well, was the SEC rules um, concerning attribution, because we have had instances where you know, we wanted to show an attribution page mm -hmm. to a prospective client. So does it mean that every single line needs to have a net performance number? But it was interesting to hear the discussion about what is actually performance when you're looking at an attribution sheet versus what is an explanation of performance, mm -hmm. because you don't need net explanations of performance, but just what the performance is. So I think that was a key insight for me um, to bring back. The other takeaway um, I had was concerning the talent, um, performance talent, because previously performance talent was relegated to, you know, production oriented roles. But now you can see an increase in programming, um, machine learning, AI, and even a little bit of just partnering with portfolio management. So it's not just a a performance professional sitting down in their cubicle and, and generating reports and performance, but it has really evolved to a larger role. And I thought that that was also interesting that this was hit on upon the conference. So I would say those are my two big takeaways. Great. Now, this next question comes from one of our listeners. What differences exist for an advisor to an insurance company that don't in the case of independent advisors. For example, does the presence of the general account pose any differences or challenges for you? That is a great question. And yes, being the investment company of, a, of a, an insurance firm, that can be unique. Um, we are an example of that. And some of the differences, I would start with the positives, include things like seed investments. So we can have a whole account from the parent company and execute a strategy for a composite that we may not have been able to do 
um, if we didn't have that that seed investment from the parent company. And if you compare us with independent advisors our size, sometimes you realize that that becomes a restriction for the independent advisor because you're not able to ex- execute certain strategies um, just due to size. The other positive I would say is um, definitely cost sharing. And when you look at big items like technology investments, um, when you look at marketing and the costs that go with that, and even R&D, being part of the insurance company helps us to share those costs. So it's not our cost alone. I think that's definitely a plus. Um, Some restrictions, one that I can think of is sometimes you want to execute certain types of composite strategies. And I will just very randomly say, for example, ESG maybe. And if the, the parent company is not ready to move in that direction, that could be a drawback or that could be a restriction of whereas an independent advisor can make that decision and go ahead without any restrictions at all. So those are the three things that I can think of um, that poses differences. Great. Now, as you're aware, TSG launched the Women in Performance Measurement Group earlier this year, and you're a member. Do you see an increased do you see increased opportunities for women in our field? Another great question. And you know, this initiative to help the women in performance management, I have to totally applaud the TSG group. Our firm has worked with the TSG um, and specifically Dave for about 15 years now. And over that course of time, I have seen the inclusion of female um, verifiers in TSG, um, female colleagues. I have seen the increase in women presenting at conferences. Um, And then you even have the Journal of Performance Measurement, um, Women in Performance and Risk Management Award. So obviously, uh, TSG is really doing everything that they can to to make sure that women are included. But personally, I think I've also seen an increase in women in the field. Um, I recently read an article that was talking about the shifting of money management to women. And that number, I believe, was in the trillions wow. um, of dollars yeah, of, of women either managing it on a professional basis or on a personal basis um, regarding estates. And I, I read that article thinking, well, you know, you, you would not really think about that, but it's true. A lot of times when you look at estate management, um, it could be a widow. Um, it could be a woman who is just overseeing the funds, but more and more you're seeing that both in the individual and also the professional fields as well. And um, I think that with the introduction of um, diversity and inclusion, there's been an intentional effort as well to include women um, in C-suite positions, which we're, we're starting to see more. Um, we're seeing CEOs that are female, we're seeing CIOs that are female, CCOs, and it's encouraging to see, um, especially in, in today. Excellent. Good stuff. Now, you attended the first in-person meeting of the Women in Performance Measurement Group last month in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Can you share some of the highlights from the event with us? 
Yeah, this was somewhat of a historical event to me um, to see the gathering of female professionals with a collected wealth of knowledge, you know, and experience in various roles within the investment teams. And it was, you could tell that everyone was knowledgeable. You could tell that everyone was passionate about sharing the knowledge and mentoring so that more women also would would be part of the field. Um, getting to know one another was a big was a big thing for me. Just making new contact, getting to know you know fellow performance um, professionals that were female and what they were doing. Um, but I think that the the real highlight of the event was the speaker who was uh, Lisa Kaplowitz, and she shared about channeling your inner athlete, or I should say, channeling your inner performance management person. Um, she touched on the need of women to feel that they should be perfect before they enter the workplace or, you know, they needed to sacrifice more to be accepted in the workplace or the need to prove to male co-workers that they had all the answers um, before accepting a, an assignment or a role. And a lot of us could, could really identify with that. Um, I remember when I started working remotely. Um, this was way back in 2008. And I remember because I moved to Florida, I felt that I had to work extra hard or else everyone would think I was at the beach. Um, <laughs> yeah, sipping on drinks instead of working. So I remember working, you know, to 7 p.m., 8 p.m. And at some point I had to tell myself if I was in the office, I would be done by 5.30. Right. And so gradually, um, I wooed myself back into having normal um, work hours. I mean, of course, now after COVID, there's nothing like normal work hours anymore. There's emails at 9 p.m. And, and you respond to it. But it was just interesting when Lisa talked about the fact that, you know, as a woman, you always feel like you need to work a little bit harder. And then she explained that you don't. Just be yourself. Um, invest in training. Um, be confident in the knowledge that you have. because you also bring something to the table like everybody else. So that was very insightful and, and helpful, I think, um, during the women's conference. Yeah, I had the, the, the fortunate uh, chance to sit on that. And it was it was it was interesting to be the only man in the in the room, which is, I, I think is a, <laughs> a role reversal for a lot of different meetings. So it, it was really a great, great, uh, right. great talk. Um, so you, you touched on ESG earlier uh, in one of your answers, and you participated last week in a panel discussion uh, on ESG at PMOR. Uh, could you provide us a, a summary or kind of the key takeaways from that panel discussion on ESG? Now, I think the, the big thing for me um, was when we started. When we started, we did a mini informal poll on how many of the attendees had some form of ESG strategy or ESG managed portfolio, and only a few hands went up. Yeah. I think that one of the panelists said it was 2% or 3%. I mean, it's hard to, to really calculate that percent <laughs> based <laughs> on the hands, but I, I think that, that that struck me because I maybe expected a higher number just because of all the different firms represented, but a lot of people were in the place that we are as a firm where you know, we're trying to figure out what ESG means to us. Mm -hmm. You know, do we want to go 
pull ahead and, and start saying that we are managing an ESG portfolio? Um, what direction do we need to take? As a firm, we, we have not decided yet um, which direction we're taking. However, there are some things that we're doing um, and all these are really clients driven. Right. So it's not even, you know, us as a company making a statement, but, you know, clients want to see things such as um, carbon footprint scores. And we're working on that for one of our clients with another client. You know, they wanted us to have an exclusionary policy. So we are screening um, companies that they invest in that um, have carbon emissions that are more than 25 percent, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. So. Even though we do not have an actual strategy, there are some things that we are putting in place um, to help with the demand of some of our clients. I mean, the regulations are coming for right. ESG. We see that in New York, for example, in order to um, to to really be an ESG firm, um, you need to have a director of sustainability on your board. Um, there's also other uh, regulations that are coming, such as if you're an insurance company of a, of a certain size, you need to fill out the climate change survey. So all these things are mandates that are driving companies to think more deeply about which direction they need to take um, concerning ESG. It was great that my two panelists had 20 years plus experience. And so, you know, they were able to offer some insight, but a lot of firms are just in that place where they're starting and they're trying to figure out which way do we go. I think that number would have been higher if this was PMR Europe, right? Probably, yeah, because Europe is way ahead of, of the U.S. when it comes to ESG, you know, with all their um, CSDR mandates and so on. So you're right, Patrick. Now, Susan, you have many years of experience in the industry. So what advice would you give to someone just starting out in performance measurement? I would say invest in training. Um, training is invaluable. And believe it or not, when I started in 2004, I believe, or 2003, it was the TSG group that I did a lot of my training with. I did the performance attribution training, the performance one-on-one -on -one training, the GIPS compliance training. And you had all kinds of classes that I'm not even sure if you still have them, but I, I was in every single class. Um, and I think that training is very helpful because it gives you the foundation of what performance entails, not just the calculations, but the whole spectrum of performance. And of course, I would definitely encourage um, anybody starting out that look into taking the CIPM exam. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's helpful because, again, it talks about the ethics of performance, the calculation of performance, um, and reporting and real case, um, real life case scenarios. So invest in yourself, invest in your training, and also don't be afraid to um, mine the thoughts um, and the intellect of the portfolio management team you're working with, because right. they work with the markets, they have an intuitive feel of what numbers should be and so when you see something that doesn't make sense don't be afraid to partner with them to say this looks like an outlier um what do you think because i think a lot of times those the two positions are separate but i don't think that that's necessarily productive it's more productive i think when it's combined when when we work together as partners because then we 
feed of each other and give each other information that helps the portfolio manage, management team, excuse me, and then the, the performance team as well. So those are my my two cents I would give. Uh, that's great. And you, you mentioned during COVID that, uh, you know, some people did gardening or, or theology. TSG built out the Institute of Performance Measurement online. So all that training you talked about is now available at institute.tsgperformance.com. Um, and we do still have fundamentals and an attribution class that we offer in person. So I appreciate that. Um, so before we hit the rapid fire round, do you have any uh, closing thoughts? Um, well, closing thoughts, in the words of my 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 faculty member, or my faculty mentor, I should say, for my doctorate program, he says all the time, you are the expert in your field, so be confident in your knowledge. And I think that for every performance personnel out there or performance professional out there, this is your field. You are the expert in it. So be confident and keep learning and keep sharing because it helps the entire firm to evolve. Great. Now it's time for some fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you could travel back in time, what period or time frame would you travel back to? Patrick, I think that um, the between 1900 and 1910, and that's because that's when a lot of archaeological artifacts were, um, I think, excavated from Egypt. And I went to the New York Met not too long ago and was just looking at some of the things they were able to preserve. And all I could think of was, wow, you know, I would have loved to be part of that team to go in and discover, you know, there was there was something that they had a, a mini drawer and there were linings. They used a lot of linings back then um, mm. to help with the preservation of bodies and all that. And there was a lady who I guess they excavated her house and she had linens that were folded. We were able to see the folded linens of this one lady that they actually took from her house exactly the way that it was and had it in the um, the showcase. I mean, I thought that was incredible that from over a hundred years ago, we have, you know, a set of folded linens that we're seeing by someone who lived in a different continent in a different era, and it was just preserved. So. I would have liked to go back to 1910 to just be a part of that. So you'd be like Indiana Jones, an archaeologist? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> What's one thing you're incredibly grateful for at this moment? At this moment, I would say my my faith and my family. Um, faith because, you know, you, you go through a lot of tough times. And there's something I think and I believe that there just has to be a greater power that you lean on. Um, and that has seen me through some interesting times and definitely my family because they've been very supportive and I totally love every member of my family. Mm. I'm grateful for them now. That's great. Here's one of my favorite questions because we get good ideas for, for where to eat. So what's the best meal that you've ever eaten? So you're not going to get a good idea from this one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, generally, I have to start by saying I like Brazilian steakhouses because it's, you know, all you can eat until you turn that green to red and then <laughs> bring in the meat. However, I went to Jamaica and I had authentic Jamaican rice and beans um, with, I think it was even chicken or something like that. And it was 
probably the best meal I have had. And since then, I've been going to different Jamaican restaurants looking for that taste. And Doug and Patrick, I haven't found it yet. (laughs) That's great. I think Steve Campisi said that Brazilian steakhouses are also his favorite place to eat. Right? Oh, did he? Right. I think so, yeah. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. <laughs> well, next time you're in New Jersey, you have to stop in Heightstown because there's a great Jamaican place called Morgan's Island Grill. And that is you spicy. told me earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, now I know. <laughs> next year. <laughs> so yeah, Next year. So what's on your nightstand, books, et cetera? Yeah, I have um, definitely bills (laughs) and then some books um, on my nightstand. And I think the the book that I'm going through now, which is on my nightstand right now, is called The Foundations by um, a theologian called Derek Prince. And this is probably the fourth time I'm going through that book because I just find it phenomenal, um, for lack of a better word. But yeah, I got bills, I got pencils, and I have books on my nightstand. Right. Uh, can you give us a, a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that gives you great joy? Yeah, I have two boys, eight and 12 years old, and spending time with them is just absolutely the best times um, that I can think of. Yesterday evening, we had gone, you know, to Sam's Club because every year we do an end of school year party. Um, I don't know why we started it, but it's a tradition that I've kept going. And so we had just gone, you know, buying things and they were so excited. And, oh, you know, mom, I can't wait till Saturday and things like that. And in my head, you know, I'm just calculating, okay, we need to get this and we need to get that. But their excitement alone. And I thought to myself, I remember saying to myself, you know, I am just so happy having these boys. I'm happy having the family that I have. So that would be an example of an ordinary Sam's Club moment that brought me joy because I was with them. That's great. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. Did you have any final thoughts before we close out? I don't, but um, I would say that congratulations again to the two of you. And I look forward to seeing more things that the TSG puts out because I think that the TSG is definitely an innovator when it comes to performance. So I'm looking forward to the next thing that TSG does. Great. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Susan. We really appreciate uh, you being with us today. So that closes us out. Next month, we're going to have James Cardamone. You heard us talking about PMAR a little bit today. One of our, our favorite things to give away was, have you hugged a performance measurement professional today? And uh, there's various formulas that we use. Um, so if you'd like one of these, we're giving this away to our first 10 uh, people that send me an email at pfowler at tsgperformance.com. Susan, I'm going to see you later this month in Edinburgh at the 101st Performance Measurement Forum. So I'm excited for that. And I know you're excited to be traveling with your family for that. Um, so thank you for today. And uh, hope to see everyone next month. Thank you. Thanks, Susan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to TSG Time. Remember to subscribe to the show by going to tsgperformance.com slash podcast so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, sign up for a free subscription to the Journal of Performance Measurement. TSG is the institutionally recognized boutique performance measurement consulting and GIPS standard specialist firm serving the investment industry. Visit us at tsgperformance.com.